0: Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that is focusing this summer on the best way to care for its forest, beaches and waterways through a promotion that emphasizes cleaning up and leaving no trace. We'll dive into how they do that just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon parks and recreation department encourages Oregonians to enjoy parks safely this summer. If you're camping, Please follow campfire safety guidelines, such as keeping flames from your fire to no more than two feet in height and using the fire ring provided at your campsite. And please use local wood to avoid bringing invasive insects into parks. This will help preserve the health of Oregon's forests for seasons to come. Learn more about campfire guidelines, including current restrictions, at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about a whole grab bag of topics. From the reopening of the Waldo Lake and Brighton Bush Highway areas, to an ancient archeological site, to news on whales, wolves, and a rock named for a love-struck sea captain of the 19th century. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, well, this is part two of our July news podcast episode. And in this edition, we're just going to go all over the place with headlines, some places to travel, and just a bunch of fun, but kind of random stuff about Oregon's outdoors. In part one, we focused on the growing wildfire danger that's come to Oregon with the hot and dry conditions. So in this episode, we're just going to focus on kind of everything else. For this edition, we're once again joined by our excellent outdoors journalism intern, Abby Landwer. She led us in reporting and producing the episode on God's Thumb, so if you haven't listened to that, make sure to get time for it. Abby, welcome back. Has this internship kept you busy enough this summer?
1: That and then some, but I'm really enjoying it.
0: Well, all right, good. Okay, so like I said in the intro, this episode is gonna take us all over the map. We'll have news headlines and travel ideas, some ancient historical sites and quirky history, along with all kinds of news. But I'm going to start us off in kind of a basic but maybe helpful place, and that's with a snapshot of the crowds this summer, particularly when it comes to campsites. So what I've been told from various sources around the state, this summer has actually been busier than last summer and right up there with the record setting and jam-packed years of 2021 and 2020. So weekend campsites are over 90% booked at Oregon State Park campgrounds, which basically means there are very, very few open sites on the weekends, not very many midweek. And my guess is that applies pretty much everywhere. So if you're having trouble finding a campsite this summer, you are definitely not the only one. To help with that a little, Oregon State Parks is trying something new. And Abby, you actually just reported a story on what's going on here. So, so what are they doing? There's not a lot of sites open, they're trying to make it a little bit easier. So what are they doing that wasn't possible previously?
1: I did. So this is part of a pilot program on the coast. And it's pretty good news for last minute campers, because before visitors could only reserve a site 24 hours or earlier before they arrived. But now campers are able to book their campground on the same day that they plan to camp. So tent and RV campers who want to make a same day reservation, they can book that at the Oregon State's Park website until 11.59 PM. But if you want to stay in a yurt or cabin, that needs to be done before 6 PM that same evening. And the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department said that it's going to waive the $8 reservation fee for all of those same day reservations at the coast while they're doing the first test of the program.
0: Yeah, it struck out to me because like I talked about, uh, because it's been so packed, some of the only sites that do become available are people canceling at the last minute. And under that previous system, some of those open sites would have just been wasted because nobody could book them in time. But I think what this does and what is that when these openings become available, people can grab them. And I do think it's a good thing because you know, the focus has shifted so much towards these reservations, websites like recreation.gov and the one state parks uses that the old tradition of the last second spur of the moment camping trip has kind of been lost, but this sort of is elite inching us back in the other direction. It kind of allows that last second thing that I like. And so I do think hopefully that it'll be a good thing. And this is relevant on the coast. I mean, you'll look at some coastal campsites that have, you know, 160 campsites and they're literally all booked for like, you know, an entire week, which is wild. Like that just was never a thing before. And so, you know, hopefully this last minute thing does help. All right, so up next, if you listen to the interview I did with CityCast Portland about wildfire danger, and if you listen to the one we posted in part one, uh, we talked about hiking and exploring wildfire scars. But one thing I didn't mention is the fact that a bunch of new areas in burn scars have recently reopened, primarily in the Detroit Lake and Waldo Lake areas. So I wrote a story on both places where you can kind of get the details. But in a nutshell, in the Detroit and Sanium Canyon, Some new forest land reopened, including all of Brighton Bush Highway 46. So that's a big one. And that's open right now. And then later this summer and fall, the French Creek Road near Detroit and Whitewater Road and Trailhead are scheduled to open. French Creek is exciting because it'll open access to the upper trailhead to Tumble Lake, which is north of Detroit. That's actually the place I took my girls on their first ever backpacking trip. And so I've really wanted to get back there. It's a really beautiful lake. And very easy to get to if you can get to this trailhead. So I'm excited to get in there. And then Whitewater is obviously because it's the quickest route to Jefferson Park in the Mount Jefferson Wilderness, which, you know, people really love that place. And they've been waiting for that trailhead to reopen. So that's a little bit later this summer or maybe fall. As we move down south, Waldo Lake also had a limited reopening in the scar of last year's Cedar Creek Fire. Um, So at this point, you can get to the lake for boating. And if you want to hike into the burned areas, you are allowed to do so, although there's definitely plenty of hazards. So be ready for that. The only campground at Waldo Lake that reopened for the season is Shadow Bay uh, because North Waldo and Islet's campgrounds did burn and there's some work that's going to go on this summer so they're not reopening the big area that's still essentially closed this year is the opal creek area which again is going to bum a lot of people out that area just it burned the hottest in the beachy creek fire the main north fork road is going to stay closed the trails they're technically open like the forest itself is open if you want to bushwhack through a burned landscape but it's going to be pretty hard to get in there so i did talk to the detroit district ranger there's some hope of more progress in the Opal reopening next spring and summer. Okay, so now that we've run through most of the areas that have reopened, let's talk about what you can actually do in them. One great option is off the newly opened highway 46 area and it's exploring this fun area that i've carted, that i've started to think of as the green island of detroit so let me explain this is an area that is smack between the wildfire scars of three very large fires so it's right between beachy creek lions head and the bull complex fires Like taken together, those fires burned well over 400,000 acres in 2020 and 2021. So just massive. But right between all of them, there is this little green zone uh, that includes places like Elk Lake, Gold Butte Lookouts, and some other very cool places that you can now access thanks to this road reopening. Abby, you explored one of them. Um, So where did you go? Where did you travel to and what did you think?
1: Yeah, so I went up to the Hawk Mountain Lookout Hike, and your description of the area being a green island is actually pretty accurate. To get up to the hike, you take the Forest Service Road 46, which, like you had mentioned, just only opened up in late June. But when you're going down that road, you can't really miss the damage, especially towards the end of the road on both sides, there's just hundreds and hundreds of rows of burnt trees. After you turn off that road, though, the hike is still about 22 miles away, so the scenery sort of just blends back into mostly untouched green. I thought that the hike was really beautiful. That area back there sort of feels like it's gotten lost in the chaos of the fires over the past few years, and I didn't see anyone back there at all. Not on the hike, not on the road, but the trail itself is still in really good condition. In all, it's a 4.2 mile hike out and back, but I think it's sort of a unique one because it features different perspectives of some of the state's most popular outdoor areas. You have a super clear and beautiful views of Mount Jefferson and the Three Sisters Wilderness throughout. The hike is mostly green, and there's a lot of meadows and hills, and they have tons of wildflowers. I'd watch where you're walking on the trail, though, because you also have to share some of the stretches with a lot of butterflies, which sounds kind of cheesy, but that's literally what the hike was like. And that being said, once you make it up the first hill, you'll round a corner and you're just kind of face to face with some of the wildfire damage. What used to be a covered forest right now is a long stretch of charred trees. And you do have to walk through that part of the trail but after you drop down it fades back into an untouched forest and once you make it to the end there's a restored historical cabin sitting at top of the lookout and it's i think it's really cool it's a first come first serve sort of thing but you can actually camp and spend the night in the cabin too if you want which i think overall it was a very beautiful sight and i really enjoyed the hike
0: yeah, Hawk Mountain is great. And the fact that it's in that little green island is is just cool because so much of that area that you're talking about, the Mount Jefferson area has burned, you know, it just looks different. And so to find these little like nooks and crannies where there's just, you know, not burned forest, it's kind of refreshing. Um, so I'm glad that you enjoyed Hawk Mountain. Hawk Mountain has always been sort of a local secret um or not not a local secret so much as just like a place that people seem to miss for whatever reason it's kind of a long drive i think like you discovered uh so it, it takes a lot of commitment to get out there and there's there's probably closer hikes so that's why people don't find it Okay, so now that we're on this topic of aftermath from the 2020 Labor Day fires, I figure that I should mention what was, in a lot of ways, one of the biggest moments since those fires, and that was the verdict last month in a class action trial against Pacific Power. Now I talked about this on the podcast before the trial and I was covering the trial as it happened, as it lasted six weeks. And it was pretty fascinating to see everything that we had reported on basically go on trial. So that, that was a really interesting thing. But anyway, if you didn't see the news and it would have been hard to miss it since it went around the state, uh, it was a resounding win for wildfire survivors who said that Pacific power should be found negligent and have to pay lots of money for igniting the fires. The jury found that pacific power was negligent and even grossly negligent on every major charge in regard to the sanium canyon echo mountain 242 and south open chain fires the jury awarded the 17 named class members almost 90 million dollars and even more important they set the stage for a situation where people from all 2500 properties that had burned in those four fires Like if you lost a house in those fires or you lost like something on the property in those fires, you can come to court and eventually make your case that you should be paid damages as well. This could ultimately cost Pacific into the billions of dollars. Now Pacific has said that they will appeal and this process is likely to drag on for years, but the verdict was still a pretty remarkable moment. All right, before we hit the break to hear from our sponsors and get into the kind of the the corkier second half of the podcast, I wanted to add some pretty sad news that is nonetheless important if you live in Salem or just you love locally owned independent outdoor gear shops. I'm actually adding this kind of late to the podcast. So if it sounds a little different, it's because I'm recording this after we did it originally. But anyway, the news is that Salem Summit Company which was a huge part of the outdoor community in Salem for the last decade is going to close. So they just made that announcement the other day. It was a huge part of downtown Salem. It was very involved in climbing and outdoor groups in town. It was a place where people rented climbing gear, skis, snowshoes. It was the kind of place where you could try on 10 different packs, Five different pairs of hiking boots. You can learn about the newest backpacking water filter. I would just let my girls like take off their shoes and like run around the store. Uh, the employees were always cool with that. I appreciated that. They had fun. I've done a lot with them over the years. One of our earliest podcasts on gear had Salem Summit Company employee Tori Mullins on. And we drafted outdoor gear that you should buy for Christmas. And that was a lot of fun. The owner, Al Tandy, uh, hosted me for book talks. He donated gear to local causes. It's kind of a cliche, but, you know, the Salem Summit Company t-shirts and sweatshirts were like a cool fashion statement to have around Salem. And I know that sounds cheesy, but, you know, when you talk to people, they definitely felt that way. Atandi hasn't really spoken about why he chose to close, so I don't have any insight there. Um, But I'd have to guess the pressure from REI moving to town a few years ago, people buying stuff online in particular makes it tough. For gear shops to survive he had a big shop right in downtown salem it was a big you know kind of anchor business so it hurts it hurts to lose that it's gonna hurt the town as a whole in the same way that you know portland losing that pearl district rei is just it just hurts the area because these outdoor shops they're gathering places they're important um this is actually the second of my favorite gear shops to close the other one the other one was the ashland outdoor store and dang we really need those like brick and mortar outdoor shops i mean for stuff like hiking boots backpacks ski boots you really need to try that stuff on in the store to get a feel for it. you can't do it it doesn't work online it just it just doesn't there's some stuff maybe you can get there but i just you know i like learning about my gear you know hearing from an expert trying it out before i buy it like the online thing i it's it's helps but it just i don't know i just don't think it's the best way to do it so i guess salem area still has the REI uh, and then there's a there's a peak sports down the road in Corvallis but it just hurts to lose that local independently owned gear shop and so you know best wishes to all the employees of Salem Summit Company I was just in there yesterday after the news broke talking with them a little bit and you know people are rallying around a lot of people are coming back they had a really busy day yesterday because people found out about this and they're like oh no But You know, that's that's what's going on now. And it is what it is. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, Abby is going to tell us all about what might be the oldest inhabited site in North America. Then we're going to talk about news related to Pacific whales, Oregon wolves, and coastal sea stars. So, that's when we return.
1: I'm Tiffany Roddy with Roseburg Forest Products. As a professional forester, I was drawn to Oregon by the trees and the vastness of Oregon's majestic outdoors. I'm proud to work for a family-owned, fully integrated wood products company with a deep commitment to our industry and our communities. Roseburg's sustainably managed timberlands are open for recreation and provide natural wood products that help make people's lives better from the ground up. We are proud members of AFRC, sponsor of the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more at amforest.org.
0: This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. On the Tillamook Coast, we've cared for our forests, farmlands, beaches, and waterways for generations. It's in our DNA, and we bet it's in yours too. While visiting, help us care for our coast. Place trash in garbage cans, pick up after your pet, stay on trails, respect private property, and follow beach fire rules, which means extinguishing fires with water while also checking local rules to avoid igniting wildfires. Tilma Coast welcomes your visit, and we hope that you'll become a temporary local while here. A few ways to do that include pitching in on a beach cleanup or taking a guided kayak tour to hear about ways to protect bays and rivers. There are science hikes to take, nature preserves and marine reserves to explore, or you can visit a farm, a commercial fishing dock, or even stop by a fish hatchery. Find out about all these options and how to care for our coast at TillamookCoast.com slash caring for our coast. Once again, it's TillamookCoast.com slash caring for our coast. All right, welcome back. In the second half of the show, we're gonna hit on a handful of topics, but we are gonna begin with one that's not exactly an outdoor recreation story, but it was so interesting that I couldn't help but come to it here. So Abby, this is a story you reported about the discovery that Oregon might be home to one of the oldest human occupied sites in North America. So there's a lot there. Uh, you talked to the archeologist who made this find and was working on it. so where are we talking about and what's going on here
1: i am so excited to talk about this story i just think it's so interesting so outside of the town of riley there's the rimrock draw rock shelter and teams have been excavating that site since 2011. those teams are from the university of oregon's museum of natural and cultural history archaeological field school That's led by archaeologist Patrick O'Grady, who I also got to speak to. So this is how it was explained to me. The orders of what layers were discovered sort of just corresponds with how old the artifacts are. So on top, there's volcanic ash from an eruption of Mount St. Helens 15,000 years ago. And under that, they found camel teeth fragments. And then beneath that, they found two different handmade orange agate scrapers in 2012 and 2015. So, because the teeth fragments have organic carbon, they're able to take about two inches from the enamel for radiocarbon dating analysis. They ran that process twice, and they kept getting consistent dates. So, those teeth are almost 18,250 years old. And because they were found in the layer above the scrapers, the scrapers are even older, which means that Rimrock Draw Rock Shelter could be one of the oldest known human occupation sites in North America. And like Patrick had told me, it's not so much that they have the old dates, it's that they're getting consistent results that they're really excited about.
0: Okay, so in a nutshell, they're finding these artifacts, they're able to date them, but do they know much about the people who left them there? Because presumably, you know, they're people because people are the only ones that make tools like this. Um, But did they have anything else on like who they were, what they were doing?
1: That's what they're working on right now. When I had talked to Patrick, he was actually back at the site, and he said that they're leading more teams over the summer and that they're working on other Ice Age animal remains and artifacts that would also support those 2012 findings.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, so, I mean, do you know and... I I mean, do you know if like what the pre because I I, Oregon has some of these like I remember there was a sandal that was found at one site like but that was like 9000 years old. So Oregon actually has kind of an interesting array of old artifacts Um, and I don't know. It surprises me that we would find such old stuff in Oregon of all places and not further to the north. I mean. Did you you know or did you talk about like other ancient sites?
1: Yeah. So back in western Idaho, Cooper's Ferry was previously thought to be the oldest known human occupation site in western North America. It seems it found evidence that would date back to more than 16,000 years. So it's managed by the Bureau of Land Management, and they have an agreement with all of these teams that they're able to excavate on these sites. And uh, in a news release, they had added that these types of discoveries are just a good reminder of the importance of maintaining public lands and to leave archaeological sites alone (laughs) to allow for the possibility of more artifacts to be found in the future.
0: Man, that's that's really interesting. Um, Well, it'll be cool to see what comes of that. And and if Oregon can remain like, you know, the designated like oldest place of human habitation in North America, that's like that's a cool title to have. Okay, so I'm gonna have three updates on wildlife news in Oregon, and I'm gonna cover wolves, whales, and sunflower sea stars. Okay, so I'll start off with gray whales. And as a reminder, these are the whales that we see every year migrating down south and then back up north from the Oregon coast. Like, Oregon Whale Watching Week is a big deal. And we had some news this winter about a string of dead whales washing ashore on the coast. And we mentioned at the time that gray whales were struggling. Well, the latest count definitely confirms that, even though it also tosses in some positive news. So here's where we are. This year, the the count was a total of 4,500 gray whales counted in the Pacific. And that's actually the lowest number counted since 1971, back when whale numbers were still recovering from the commercial whaling era. For comparison, the peak number of whales was 2016, and that was 27,000. So the fact that the count is so low, as low as 14,500, seems pretty dire. But wildlife officials say there are a number of reasons for optimism, including the highest number of calves being born in five years in the lagoons in Baja, Mexico. There's fewer dead whales washing ashore than in previous years, and whales that just appear healthier in looking at them. A spokesman for NOAA Fisheries, uh, Michael Milstein, he noted that gray whales did see numbers decline really fast around 2000, but then they rebounded. So their their numbers do tend to fluctuate a little bit. So the hope is that that's what's happening here and we're just hitting an upswing. Okay, so from gray whales to gray wolves here in Oregon, we had a really odd case down in the North Umpqua and Diamond Lake area back in June. So what biologists think happened here was that humans were feeding a yearling member of the indigo pack. So this is a young wolf and they think that humans must have fed it because the wolf became really weird around people, almost habituated to people, like it acted very unwolf-like. Normally, wolves want no part of people, they'll avoid them at almost all costs. This one started trotting close to cars, it would roll on its back around people, and it was showing up in multiple social media videos. I'm going to play the audio from one of those videos. And look, you're going to have to excuse the offensive language here, but I really think this illustrates the weirdness of the situation because it's just like the perfect response to a very large wolf wolf just like trotting by your car. So this audio came from a TikTok user named Courtney Rian.
1: Holy fucking shit, you guys. Is that a fucking wolf? you are a beautiful majestic bitch
0: so yeah that's some of the kinds of responses that this wolf was eliciting and this was a radio collared wolf known as or 143 and it was you know being sighted all the way up and down the highway 138 corridor again between you know Umqua national forest by diamond lake it got so bad that forest officials sent out a news release warning people to watch out and not interact with him. unfortunately OR 143 was killed just about a week later by a truck on Highway 138 east of Roseburg. And it just, it really shows the importance of not feeding or interacting with wildlife, because even in the case of wolves, who are like the wildest of the wild, they can become habituated and change the way they behave, um, you know, if they're fed by humans or something like that. So don't do that. Okay, the last update here is gonna be a quick one in a bit of good news a group of 25 critically endangered sunflower sea stars were found just off the oregon coast by a group of divers from the oregon coast aquarium now this is important because sea star wasting disease has almost wiped out the entire population of these on the pacific coast so this find which included a lot of juvenile sea stars was encouraging and similar to whales maybe you know a a note that there was some kind of rebound underway, which again would be badly needed because sunflower sea stars are critical to the near shore environment of the coast. They eat sea urchins who have been munching down on on kelp and they're just needed in the ecosystem to to keep it balanced. So hopefully a rebound happening there. (laughs) Okay, so now we're gonna rebound a little bit to the area west of Salem. And Abby, you reported on an important land purchase for conservation at one of my favorite and underrated state parks that is not too far from Salem. So what's going on at Lucky Mute Landing State Natural Area?
1: Along the Willamette for years, there's been this stretch of land that splits the two halves of the Lucky Mute Landing. And in May, Greenbelt Land Trust, which is a Corvallis nonprofit, announced that they've bought those 110 acres. The organization was actually nice enough to give me a tour of the area. So here's Matt Blakely-Smith, the Stewardship Director for Greenbelt Land Trust. Just a heads up, we were walking down to the river when we recorded this.
2: This property went up for sale about six months ago. And as soon as we saw it, we decided we have to act quickly and purchase this. This has been kind of on the wish list for decades
1: right now it's just a waiting process the land is being used by a local dairy farmer for the next two years but there's a list of things that the organization is hoping to get done the first is to combine a trail system between the north and south units which would in all make a 10 mile full trail the other is to re-establish a floodplain habitat and that would restore the natural connection between the willamette and lucky mute rivers and here's madigan to explain what that would mean for some of the species in the area
2: spring chinook salmon and steelhead Migrate up from the ocean into the watershed, and once they spawn um, at the headwaters, the juvenile salmon slowly migrate downriver towards the sea. And during that period, um, they need refuge from um, big flood water, they need essentially nursery grounds for them to grow and to um, fatten up, if you will. And so These confluence areas are really important in the wintertime when they flood that the um, juvenile salmon can get out of the raging river and onto the floodplain uh, where they feast on all sorts of invertebrates.
0: All right, well, we're going to end with a bit of news about one of my favorite destinations in Oregon and my long promised story about the love struck sea captain. I just love saying that. That's just a fun phrase that I don't get to use very often as an outdoor journalist. So, yeah. So, first off, why don't you tell us what happened at Proposal Rock over last weekend?
1: I still don't know what the chances of me being there when it happened were, but I had just randomly decided to go visit Nesquin on Saturday to check out the beach and Proposal Rock. Uh, And you can get to the top of Proposal Rock when the tide is low, it can just sort of be a steep and muddy trail. But when I got to the coast at around 4 o'clock, the waves had rolled in and it wasn't accessible, which was what the problem here was. At some point, an emergency vehicle pulled up on the beach, and it was because an 18-year-old had gotten trapped on the north side of Proposal Rock. Someone else had tried to go over there to help, but then they also got trapped. About an hour and a half later, the US Coast Guard flew in in a helicopter to help with an airlift. And at that point, I think everyone on the beach had just gathered on the shoreline to watch the rescue. So an air crew member lifted the 18 year old back to shore and the other person was able to get back to land and only minor hand abrasions were reported. But I'm pretty sure everyone visiting Neskowin over the weekend had a story about that rescue to bring back with them.
0: Now, it's very important not to make light of someone else's misfortune. Any, any one of us can get lost, can get trapped. These things happen. But in this case, it was a safe and happy outcome. I just figured it would give me the chance to both repost some audio and just talk about this really interesting area of Proposal Rock and the ghost forest of Nezcoen. So Proposal Rock, if you're visualizing it, it's it's called a sea stack, which means it's just off the coast. And like again, like you said, you can get to it sometimes when the tide is low, but then the tide comes in and it has a way a a habit of trapping people it's honestly one of the most interesting places in oregon just how it got its name um, how this ghost forest that is on the beach there formed and when you can see it and yes the stories of couples getting marooned on proposal rock because you know because of the name a lot of people go out there to pop the big question and there have been cases when people have popped the big question celebrated by climbing proposal rock and got stuck there which is an inauspicious way to start a marriage So here's a little audio from a piece that I did on Proposal Rock a number of years ago um, in a podcast that we did that focused on the Tillamook Coast. The other person in this audio is guidebook author Adam Spencer. And so we'll just sign off from today's Grab Bag of News podcast with this clip which always makes me laugh. Okay. All right. So for my fifth pick, um, I've yet another absolutely fascinating place that I'm going to do my best not to go on quite as long as I did about, uh, Cape Kiwanda. But so my final pick is proposal rock and the Nezcoen ghost forest. Now this is just a pretty little beach in the tiny town of Nezcoen, uh, And so you walk out onto the beach, and you notice kind of a really big island sea stack, and it is known as Proposal Rock. At low tide, you can actually go out there, climb up a steep little trail to the top, and it's kind of a fun trip, great ocean views and stuff like that. But obviously, the name stands out, and again, this is just one of my favorite little histories. So the origins of that name go back to a sailor named Charlie Gage, and he came to the town of Nezcoen in the 1800s. Apparently, his heart was filled with love for a local girl named Delia Page, the daughter of a homesteading family that tended a farm along the Nezcoen Creek. As the story goes, Charlie took Della out on a boat and they floated to the rock. It's unclear if they walked onto the rock or not, but he asked for her hand in marriage around here. And in honor of it, the Page family, again, who are locals, they started calling it Proposal Rock. And the name stuck so much so that it is now a popular place for people to go and get engaged. Um, a few years ago, I was writing about this area and I talked to the guy that owns Proposal Rock Inn and he said that while they do benefit from a lot of people coming out there to get married and to get engaged, they've stopped promoting it quite so much because what they found is that it puts a lot of pressure on couples. <laughs> <laughs> but if they were staying... Uh, you know, in the inn called Proposal Rock and it <laughs> created this expectation that someone better propose. And, Call it the sweaty, sweaty palms know, in. And so they, they still do, but they've kind of de-emphasized that um, just a little bit. And another word of caution for something decidedly unromantic is that, you know, I talked about how you can climb up Proposal Rock at low tide. The problem is tide eventually comes back in and a number of couples have been stranded at the top, like as the water got really high, which would kind of put a damper on the engagement. Um, (laughs) So, so don't get stranded on proposal rock also if you're looking for something decidedly less romantic but in my opinion a lot cooler the area is also home to the nezcoen ghost forest and at the lowest winter tides the stumps of this entombed collection of ancient sitka spruce become visible so here's how this happened so long ago these trees were entombed by a massive earthquake Uh, We believe it was the last giant Cascadia earthquake back in 1700. And it actually dropped the coastal forest below the sand, but then preserved it in this saltwater bath. So the ghost forest became visible for the first time in 1997 uh, after a series of really big storms just swept down away the layers of sand and the trees started poking up through the surface. And apparently now at low tides, I don't know exactly how low the tides have to be for you to see it but you can go out and, and find it. I know it's in the winter. Um, I'm going to end this with uh, when I was researching the story. Uh, you know, when this first became visible, it was, a, it was a pretty big news event. And so Brad Kane, who's with the Associated Press, went out there, and this is the first sentence that he wrote. And it's just a really good one. So here's what he wrote. Like gnarled fingers rising from the surf, hundreds of stumps from an ancient forest that has been entombed since the time of Jesus are being slowly unearthed by El Nino's pounding waves. Wow. So that is, that's Brad Kane, ladies and gentlemen, that man, (laughs) that man can write a lead. Um, And so that is just, you know, overall, I don't know, like Nezquin is sort of like, yeah you know it's kind of cool and stuff but like just the interesting tidbits there like just have always made it a favorite spot i think
1: and that that's one of the things that
0: it's worth uh researching and taking the time to find out when tides are and what they're doing because i think that is a, a spot that is special for that reason that you you know you don't get to see i don't know how many other spots are like that. i know a few goes for us up and down the coast but uh yeah, you know, they're they're few and far between, and and that one's really worth it. I'm glad you included that in your list. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com slash explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest, for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforests.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com recreation map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.